Join us for a one-of-a-kind online operatic celebration. On December 3rd at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Guild will present Silver Soiree, an online gala. During this 90-minute celebration, we will honor the 25th anniversaries of the Metropolitan Opera debuts of Stephanie Blythe, Christine Gerke, Denise Graves, and Patricia Rossette. This Silver Anniversary Gala will feature appearances from our honorees, a musical performance by Angel Blue, video tributes from Marilyn Horn, Frederica von Stada, and maestro Yannick Nezet-Seguin, and appearances from more of opera's other biggest names. This is sure to be a celebration that you will not want to miss. Your participation in this important fundraising event will support the Guild's transformative school programs, which last year alone introduced opera to more than 14,000 students from nearly 200 schools. To learn more or to register for this fantastically unique virtual event, please visit www.metguild.org silver or call 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera House has hosted many U.S. premieres throughout its history, including, you guessed it, Tristan und Isolde in 1886. Did the Metropolitan Opera House premiere any other Wagner works? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Answer time. Five Wagner operas had their United States premieres at the Metropolitan Opera. Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg and Tristan und Isolde in 1886, Siegfried in 1887, I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have lecturer Harlow Robinson discussing the intricacies of Wagner's evergreen hit opera, Tristan und Isolde. The chord is actually, it's F, B, D sharp, G sharp. Right? Which doesn't solve, uh, doesn't sound like it belongs to any particular key center. <laughs> and, that, and that's the whole point, right? And you'll hear that chord over and over again throughout, right? Uh, and this is how the opera opens, with this long prelude that lasts about 10 minutes, actually. And in the very f first measures, we get this indication that we're in a very unstable world, musically, dramatically. And I wanted first to play for you just um, an audio recording. This just hear the opening.
you'll hear that same chord in a lot of different configurations through, throughout, throughout the opera, most part. And the other, you know, many things you can say musically, of course, about it that are important. It predates the ring, actually. He was already working on the ring when he was writing Tristan, but hadn't finished it yet. So he was already thinking in these very mythical terms. It's a story of, of myth. And notice that the singing, mostly, it's very natural in that only one person sings at a time. And this was something Wagner thought was important. And he had initially thought he would write it in a more Italianate style with duets, trios, ensembles, and so on. But he felt that he wanted to make it more, as he called it, naturalistic. So generally speaking, you, we only hear one singer at a time for almost the entire opera. When finally Tristan and Isolde do sing together, it's so amazing. And that happens you know, at the end of Act One after they drink the potion and then later on at, at the end of the opera. And there's very little chorus. There's an offstage chorus of sailors, but there's very little chorus as well. It's mainly one singer at a time, long sort of monologues. And there aren't arias exactly. There's a few pieces that are sometimes excerpted, like Isolde's narration and, the, of course, the scene at the very end, the Liebestod, death love, love death. And often you hear in concert the prelude and the Liebestod, which is a little bit weird, <laughs> the very beginning and the very end. But it's not easy to extract from Tristan and Isolde pieces that you could hear in concert as sung as arias, like uh, from Verdi or, 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 and so on. So let me tell you a little bit more about the historical background and some other observations, and then I want to look at some more scenes to talk about. Now, of course, this is set in the legendary past, and of course, so many productions of his Tristan have taken so many different uh, takes on it. I'm, I'm sure you've seen others. Some are very abstract, like actually the previous Met production was quite abstract, the one that uh, Deborah Voigt was in, for example. I saw one at the um, L.A. Opera years ago with designs by David Hockney, and it's, it, that was called by some retro pop. And it really turned it into kind of a light, happy fairy tale. <laughs> Very different from this extremely dark, uh, you know, noir approach that Trelinsky takes. So, of course, there's many, many different ways to approach this story. And I think the fact that it was set in a mythological past without a particular date, Wagner loved that because it gives you all kinds of possibilities for how to interpret it, right? And it doesn't actually make it sit in one period necessarily. So that's certainly true of Tristan. And then he, of course, expanded on that in The Ring. It had its first performance in 1865 in Munich. And the patron behind really was King Ludwig. Ludwig was gay, and there were even rumors around this time that he and Wagner were lovers, which does not seem to have been the case. But Wagner uh, was very, of course, happy that uh, Ludwig supported this project. He had had some problems getting Tristan staged. It was hard to imagine staging Tristan. If you think about opera in the 1850s and the 1860s, Tristan was something really, really different. And of course, it has actually very little plot. You know, what is the plot? We, we, there's a lot of backstory. That's the thing. But, you know, in Act One, we have Isolde, who's being taken on a ship uh, from Ireland to Cornwall because Ireland's been conquered by Cornwall. She's being taken on a ship to marry King Mark in Cornwall. We find out Tristan 
is Mark's nephew, and he's serving as the messenger. He's bringing her to King Mark. Well, it turns out, of course, that Isolde and Tristan have a whole history together that she tells us about in her narration in Act One, that, in fact, uh, Tristan had been fighting in Ireland before, had adrift in a boat, came ashore. He pretended to be someone named Tantris, and Isolde nursed him back to health, and then finally realized that he had killed her betrothed. So she's going to Cornwall to marry King Mark with all this baggage. Right, So she finally gets there, and on the way she has, and both of them, Tristan and Isolde, both have these very close companions. Uh, you know, Tristan and Cournival, it's almost a bromance, right? And of course, Tristan has uh, Brangena, and these are very important characters who help them throughout. Brangena also is kind, she's not a witch, but she has powers that she's learned from her mother and others of mixing potions which can do different things. Potions for death, potions to make somebody fall in love, and, and so on. And in the, of course, the, what happens at the end of Act One is Tristan and Isolde take a potion. Isolde thinks it's a death potion. She wants to kill Tristan and, and kill herself so that she doesn't have to go through this ordeal of marrying King Mark. Brangena cannot bring herself to give them a death potion and instead substitutes the love potion, right? So this is the great climax of Act One. They take, they drink this potion, and they fall madly in love. And so they arrive in Cornwall, and they're in love with each other. And she's supposed to be marrying King Mark. Uh oh, right? Yeah. But one of the big questions about this opera, which I think is really interesting, is: Did they really need the potion? Actually, we can tell, especially as time goes on and they talk more about it, that they were actually in love already. You know that. In fact, that they fell in love at the first time they saw each other when she saved him in this and nursed him back to health. That there were, they exchanged these glances, these fatal glances, and they were actually in love already. But because she's Irish, he's Cornish, <laughs> they're enemies, they can't follow that passion. And so there's this, all this confusion of, well, maybe, you know, the potion is actually kind of a placebo. King Mark finally. He is told by Brangena at the end of the opera, well, you know, I gave them this potion. So that's why they fell in love, and that's why Tristan betrayed you, your great friend, he betrayed you. And it's easier for Mark to accept because he thinks, okay, they took a potion. So that's, that explains why my great friend Tristan would fall in love with my betrothed Isolde. So the way the potion operates is really interesting. It's on a, on a, number, of, on a number of different levels. Tristan came out of a very personal relationship in Wagner's own life. He was having an affair with a Mathilde, von, uh, Mathilde Weisen, Weisendonck, who was the wife of his patron Otto Weisendonck of, of, of Zurich. And of course, he also wrote these wonderful Weisendonck leader songs about her. He moved to Paris with Mathilde in 1859 while he was working on Tristan. And around the same time, he met King Ludwig. Then later, Wagner became involved with Cosima von Bulau, and uh, she bore him a daughter who he called, named Isolde. <laughs> but that did not prevent Hans von Bulow from conducting the first performance. <laughs> so lots of, uh, you know, personal friends here uh, that were connecting the people who were responsible for creating uh, this opera. The first performance, generally the response was not too enthusiastic. 
And it was really when it came to America that it had huge success, and fairly early at the Met in 1886. So, and Wagner, of course, wrote his own libretto for this opera. And he said, I can conceive a subject only when it comes to me in such a form that I myself cannot distinguish between the contribution of the poet and that of the musician in me, and its completion in word and tone is simply the ultimate realization of something that had originally presented itself to me only in vague outlines. And he created for this opera this uh, kind of ersatz medieval language, this kind of fake uh, middle high German <laughs> that, the, that the characters are, are singing in. There really is minimal external action. It's all about the drama in the emotions of the protagonist. As I said, a symphonic opera. It has also, if you know Wagner, you know about the whole idea of the light motif, that the characters or their situations are identified with particular fragments, themes. There are 40 different light motifs in this opera. I mean, this is something extremely complicated. Many volumes have been written <laughs> about the use of light motifs in, in Tristan. One of them is the one that we heard at the very beginning, but there are many others. There's the great love theme, there's Mark's theme, there's Cornival's theme, there's the sailor's theme, and all of these interwoven in an incredibly complex style. So, of course, the orchestra is very, very important uh, in, in this opera, and this is something else that was really different. I mean, the orchestra can be important in Verdi, or Puccini, but nothing like, it's like a character, of course, in, in Tristan. The other big idea here is love and death. This was when Wagner was very interested in the ideas of the philosopher Schopenhauer. Uh, maybe some of you have read some Schopenhauer. And the idea here was that if you were really in love with somebody, you actually just wanted to merge and die. <laughs> and this is what we hear from both of them from the very beginning. Isolde is, talks about dying from the very beginning of the opera. And when they finally take the love potion and have their great love scene at the end of Act One, they're saying how I'm so happy, I'm so in love with you that I want to die. We have to die together. And of course, that's what happens. Wagner became interested in this tale while he was in Dresden, actually as early as the uh, early 1840s. Another important element here is night and day. We have love and death and night and day. And night time is a good time for Isolde and Tristan. <laughs> this is when they feel most alive. They are always talking about how they don't like the daylight. The daylight, you know, because it's reality. It's, um, it's not about love. Night is about love. And the Schopenhauer influence about death, you know, this also was related to Wagner's great interest in Nietzsche. Wagner and Nietzsche were very affected by these ideas of Schopenhauer, music as a direct expression of the strivings of the will and the denial of the will. And Wagner wrote to Liszt, I have found a sedative which has finally helped me to sleep at night. It is the sincere and heartfelt yearning for death. Total unconsciousness, complete annihilation, the end of all dreams, the only ultimate redemption. So this longing for non-existence turns into the climax of erotic love. They cease to merge as individuals, uh, to exist as individuals and merge into one being in, in death.
at the beginning of each act, each act begins with an unaccompanied musical section, which is very interesting. Act one begins with a sailor singing a sort of strange song about the wind and where are we going. And it's also musically, it sort of once again doesn't have any tonal center, kind of wanders around, sounds very much like a folk song or a sailor's song. All right, so let's see the sailor's song actually. Um, this is the opening of Act One. So uh, we don't know why he's unhappy about going to Cornwall uh, at this point. We find out a little bit later when she tells Brangena in a long narration, which is sometimes also excerpted as a concert piece. Um, Isolde has this long narration where she tells the whole backstory of what I described, how she found this, uh, her, uh, this man washed up on shore in a boat, and she took pity on him. He was wounded. He said his name was Tantris. In fact, it was actually Tristan. And then Tristan, of course, the other thing is that Tristan later killed her betrothed Morolt. So all of this, at first we don't understand this. We gradually get to understand this in the course of Act One. Okay, and uh, now as in a good example of how these motifs work, I wanted to show you the scene where Brangena goes to Tristan. This is all Act One, of course. 
she goes up to Tristan and says, well, Isolde would like to see you. Will you please come see her? And um, at first he doesn't want to because he says it's, he, he's focused on the trip and, and, and somehow it's conflicting for him. So when Van Grenda goes up to ask him this, uh, he mentions, uh, she mentions Isolde's name. What do we hear? The love motif, right? So this is a really good example of how Wagner is using this. So a lot of writing about this opera also points out that it's Freudian and that it's another, you know, it was part of the kind of revolution and the uh, understanding of psychology that was happening in the second half of the 19th century, leading to Freud and psychoanalysis and, and so on. And by using these motifs, he's basically saying, well, we're saying one thing, but we really are meaning another, right? And that's what's so brilliant about the way this is used. Of course, Act One is all about the, the ship voyage uh, from Ireland to Cornwall. They land, and at the very same moment that Isolde and Tristan have 
profess their great love for each other. There they are, and here's Mark, and they're supposed to be presenting her to him as, as her bride, right? So conflict, obviously. So what happens in Act 2? Well, in Act 2, there's a lot of waiting, <laughs> and in Act 3, there's also a lot of waiting, <laughs> right? In, in Act 2, Isolde is, uh, we see her at the beginning. She's waiting, hoping Tristan will appear. She has a lot of uh, interaction with her loyal servant, Brangana. And remember, as I mentioned yesterday, both the major characters, Tristan has Cornival and Isolde has uh, Brangana. And of course, that is, uh, and there are long exchanges between them in Act 2 and in Act 3. And of course, they can share with their close confidants the feelings that they have. So this is an easy sort of theatrical technique. But OK, so we start in, in Act 2. And one of the things that happens at the very beginning of Act 2 is we hear hunting horns. And remember I said at the beginning of each act of Tristan, there's a section of unaccompanied music, either singing or instrumental, without the orchestra, right? Remember at the beginning of Act 1, it was the sailor's song. Yeah, that weird sailor's song. At the beginning of Act 2, it's hunting horns, which tell us something about King Mark, right? This is like the world of chivalry, kind of, right? He, he spends his time off hunting like kings do, yes? And it also kind of lets us know about his military character. And then at the beginning of Act 3, we hear this wonderful English horn solo that's a shepherd's pipe. And in Act 3, actually, the, um, the shepherd's pipe becomes a signal once again, right? Because first we very mournful tune on the shepherd's pipe, which lets us know that Isolde's ship has not arrived yet. And we hear that several times. And then finally, when the ship is in sight, the shepherd's uh, pipe plays a happy tune, a merry tune. So he uses that, uh, Wagner uses that to sort of also advance the plot, but show us in a musical way. Okay? So here, let's uh, look at the opening scene one of act two. This is after there's an orchestral prelude that opens the, the act two, shorter than the one at the beginning of act one, but then it's followed by this, um, by hearing hunting horns.
as I said, there's a lot of uh, a lot of this act is happens in between Isolde and uh, Brangena. Let me read you what Wagner said about the opening of Act Two. This is how Wagner envisioned it. Act Two, an orchard. <laughs> <laughs> Not an orchard. <laughs> in front is Isolde's chamber with steps leading up to it. Through the open door, one can see into the dimly lit interior. Bright, pleasant, moonlit night. Sounds of hunting, at first loud, then fading into the distance. On the steps, Brangena, leaning against the doorway, watches the retreating pack of hunters. Isolde, can you still hear them? Brangena attempts to restrain her impetuosity. Brangena suspects treachery. She finds his suddenly arranged hunt at night suspicious. Isolde dispels her concerns. Brangena reproaches herself as the cause of their unpress. I wanted to prevent your death and have only changed it into a suffering that will kill us all. Isolde calms her down, praises her action, reveals what was to be made manifest, death and Tristan. This is what we hear about from the very beginning of Act Two, Death and Tristan. And of course, this is where the whole opera leads to, the final scene of Tristan's death and Isolde's also. How does Isolde die? In Vater, she just sort of collapses and is transfigured. You know, the really important thing is the transfiguration, right? So she's just transported somewhere else along with him. There's no obvious cause of death. It's not suicide. She doesn't stab herself like in Romeo and Juliet, you know, there's no poison. She just expires of ecstasy. Back to we have the whole question of, you know, what what's going to happen? You know, is Mark uh, going to discover what's happened? And we have this music that shows us the menacing uh, of Melot, of course, right? Melot is the character who is working for King Mark and who acts against Tristan, especially in Act Two. So here's that menacing music that we hear that lets us know that something's going to happen. And Isolde, you know, is so far gone <laughs> that she doesn't, she's oblivious. I mean, on a, a whole uh, divine level, right? She's just oblivious of anything really that's happening around her. And Brangana keeps trying to warn her and bring her down to earth. And of course, at the end of this act, what happens exactly is that Melot tells Mark about Tristan and Isolde and brings, and they come. And we have the sword fight in this. There's a sword fight between them. 
and basically Tristan allows himself to be wounded, so he uh, to be mortally wounded. So Melot is the one who's basically told King Mark, after all, his master, what's going on between them, and that uh, his great friend Tristan has betrayed him with the woman he's Mark supposed to be marrying. Brangana, of course, is right, but Isolde doesn't want to hear any of this. Okay, so, so Brangana is trying to warn Isolde, and uh, she's not having much luck. So, waiting. In Act 2, Isolde is waiting for Tristan. In Act 3, Tristan's waiting for Isolde, <laughs> right? So, they're very uh, parallel in, in a certain way. And as I said, um, the sign that they have agreed upon is the extinguishing of the torch. When the torch is extinguished, night, dark, love, then it's safe for Tristan to come.
So a long scene now follows of the two of them. One critic unkindly described it as erotic screaming. <laughs> but there's, uh, there's a lot of exchanges back and forth between them. And then they actually finally start to sing together in beautiful duet. And then another really beautiful little scene that's interpolated here for Brangena, and it's this lovely little interpolated sort of lyrical moment. She's sort of keeping watch for them while they, you know, have ecstasy in each other, and she's keeping watch to, uh, to protect them. And I just wanted to uh, show you a little bit of that. Okay, so then, you know, Act 2 comes to its climax when King Mark appears with his men, and he's been tipped off by Milot of what's going on, that his great dear friend and nephew, Tristan, has uh, betrayed him. And so he shows up, and he's angry, and he has this long monologue where he tells Tristan, how can, he have how can you have done this to me? I've been so kind to you, and so on and so on. And here you can see a little bit of this. Ruhm und Reich, geh zu Ende. 
He has a long scene here, Mark, where he pours out his disappointment and disillusionment and, and sadness. But of course, at the end of Act 3, Mark understands that the reason Tristan betrayed him with Isolde was because of the love potion. And as I mentioned last night, that lets Mark feel like, oh, well, okay, they took this love potion. It makes him feel better about it. What happened? And he comes to forgive them at the end of Act 3, but of course he arrives too late, right? Too late to uh, prevent the death of Tristan and then of Isolde. But Mark does forgive them at the end of Act 3 after he finds out from Brangena, who goes to tell him. Brangena goes to tell King Mark in Act 3, well, listen, they took a potion. You know, that's why he betrayed you. But as we said, really the potion almost seems irrelevant. <laughs> and it, it helps Mark feel better <laughs> that this is the reason. It gives him a reason to forgive uh, Tristan. Right. Act 2 goes on, and then there's a struggle at the very end between when uh, Tristan lunges towards Melot, finally, and then drops his sword so that he knows he's going to be wounded, is what in the, in the original libretto happens. But basically, Tristan almost commits suicide at the end of Act Two. And that's how Act Two ends. Then there's a big gap in time between Act Two and Act Three. We don't know how long. And a change of scene. We change to Brittany, to Tristan's ancestral home, his castle. And he's, he's, um, he's there, wounded, mortally wounded, with Corneval. And Corneval has let Isolde know that he's dying, and uh, she, it's unclear a little bit what happened to Isolde in the meantime. It seems like she was kept captive uh, after Act Two, but then it was allowed to leave. And he's hoping, Corneval, that she'll come with other uh, magic ointments to heal Tristan. That's sort of the idea. So Act Three is all about waiting for the ship to arrive. <laughs> uh, they keep scanning the horizon. You know, is it coming? Is it coming? Is it coming? Where's the ship? Where's the ship? Where's the ship? You know, they're looking out. And then finally the ship arrives with, with uh, Isolde, and they have this uh, joyous reunion. But one of the most amazing orchestral passages in the opera is the prelude to Act Three. This is some of the most amazing, I would say, funeral music uh, that you could ever hear.
prelude um, is followed by the opening of Act Three, uh, where Tristan is lying mortally wounded on some kind of bed or pallet, and we hear this horn, English horn solo, which is off stage. And uh, once again, it's very much like the tune you hear at the beginning of Act One. It doesn't really have a tune. It sort of wanders in a weird way. And as I said, it's the, um, also the signal that the ship is not yet here in its kind of sad, mournful quality. Then finally, they see the ship arrive. The English horn plays a different tune, and that's when you can tell, because suddenly the English horn is playing a happy tune, and that's the signal that the ship is actually in sight on the horizon. So the ship finally arrives. Isolde comes, meets, uh, sees Tristan again, but almost immediately after that, he dies. Is oh he he's simply been waiting for her to arrive to feel like he can die. And here, Mark arrives, and she assumes that he's there to punish them. But... 
And then, of course, what follows here is the very famous section where Isolde alone uh, sings for about uh, five minutes or so uh, her Liebes uh, uh which concludes the aria, where she is singing about being joined with him in the, in the love that they sought. She's full of ecstasy and, and joy. And that's, uh, that's how we end. And finally, at the very end, we finally get that resolution of the harmony <laughs> that we've been waiting for for four and a half hours, you know. This B major chord comes finally at the end to resolve this incredible tension, this harmonic, dramatic tension that we've been feeling throughout. So there you go. There's Act 3. So I, um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope I helped you understand this a little bit. Thank you. That was lecturer Harlow Robinson discussing the history, traditions, and music of Tristan und Isolde. To learn more about Wagner and operatic history, visit metguild.org or make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening. <laughs>